If you'd remain standing, our scripture this morning comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 4, and it's verses 1 through 11. It reads, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But Jonah said to God, or God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated. And uh, before we watch the video, I wanted to, to just share with you a few moments. Uh, Mindy and I went... Uh, Friday and Saturday, we were in Lubbock for the meeting of the West Plains Conference of the Global Methodist Church. And first of all, when I share with you all that it's coming next spring, I think there's going to be a meeting in January or February, and we offer an invitation to you to come. I hope that you, you consider it seriously. Uh, it's the first meeting I've ever been to that we were there for 36 hours, and I think we did 30 minutes of business total, and the rest was worship and prayer and more worship and prayer, and then, well, what else, Mindy? Worship and prayer, and some teaching, but it was just really good. It was really, um, it was just a very neat thing, and, and Mindy shared uh, the, the business, or not the business, she shared the teaching sessions and the worship on Facebook, so if you're interested and you'd like to, to see what went on, you are more than welcome to go to the, the First Methodist Church of Clovis Facebook page, and those links are there, uh, if, uh, if anything, I would encourage you to just go and, you know, you can scroll along and, and skip the music. Not that the music was bad, the music was wonderful. But if you want to go hear the teachers and the preachers, um, they were certainly worth it. And so I'd encourage you to do so. Um, also, interesting thing, uh, I got there and, and found out that my ordination would be re-recognized. Who knew? So I've been I haven't been reordained, but I got a new certificate, so that was kind of fun. Um, no, 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 no. That's fine. Um, although I'm like, what's happening? And then I realized what they have to do, which when we were United Methodists, we did that when other clergy from other denominations came in, we recognized their ordination. And so that happened. And, and so of course that was nice because that makes it official. Um, also something that I thought was really exciting that I know he had shared as we had talked about the different things that have gone on as we were preparing for uh, becoming a global Methodist congregation is the the conference actually voted for next year to reduce the ask of what they're asking local churches to participate and to contribute um, from five percent to four percent, 
And that's because of the faithfulness of all of our churches um, in participating in our shared ministry together and also the impetus and the focus on having more money stay in the local church so that we can actually be in ministry in our community. And so um, that's unheard of in the Methodist world. And so um, I wanted to share with you all that. And actually they said their plan is hopefully in another 18 months or so, uh, once we get to where, you know, we kind of know where things are at. I mean, we're uh, to even reduce that ask to 3% because they want to keep as much money in our local church and in our community so that we can be doing and engaging in ministry both locally and then also internationally in ways that, that we see are our best fits for us as opposed to, to just sending money off and not really knowing what happens to it. So I want to share that with you all. Um, it's exciting. I've never left a conference session looking forward to the next one. Um, and so that was really kind of cool. Um, do you have anything to add? Have I forgotten anything? No, we'll share. Okay. All right. So I didn't ask her to share earlier. So um, I think that's it. So the next one will be, I think in January, February, it looks like, where they're going to be um, gathering again. There'll be some other uh, churches that are going to be joining the Global Methodist Church, so they have to be voted and recognized, as well as clergy that make that transfer. Um, and so that'll, that'll be coming. Um, and I think that's it. And I'm sure the second I tell you all to pay attention to the video, I'm going to think of the last thing. So um, that's okay. So if you all would turn your attention to the screen, we're going to watch uh, another animation. Uh, this one covers the story of Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah's mission to bring the Lord's message of repentance to the people of Nineveh was a complete success. But instead of seeing Nineveh's transformation as a reason to be happy and celebrate, Jonah was furious and he lost his temper and yelled at God. I knew it, Jonah cried. I knew when I was back home that you are full of grace, mercy, and endless love and that you would forgive these people and not punish them. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. God replied to Jonah's angry outburst. What do you have to be angry about? But Jonah didn't respond. He just stormed out of the city, headed east, and sat down in a sulk. He built a makeshift shelter of leafy branches so that he could sit in the shade while he watched and waited to see what would happen to the city. God arranged for a plant with large, broad leaves to spring up where Jonah had set up his little camp. The leaves spread out over Jonah and cooled him off, pulling him out of his foul mood. Jonah was pleased and enjoyed the shade. Life was looking up. But just as quickly and unexpectedly as the plant arrived, so too did a worm. This worm enjoyed eating the plant as much as Jonah enjoyed sitting in its shade. By dawn of the next day, the worm that God had sent had eaten so much of the tree that it withered away. As the sun rose to reveal the withered state of the plant, God sent a hot blistering wind from the east. The sun beat down on Jonah's head. 
As Jonah was about to faint from the heat, he prayed to die, saying, I'm better off dead. But God said to Jonah, What right do you have to get angry about this shade tree? Jonah replied, I have plenty of right. Losing it has made me angry enough to want to die. How can you be so angry over a plant you did nothing for? God asked Jonah. You neither planted nor watered it. It grew up one night and died the next. Now you're so angry that it's dead that you would rather die than live without it. So why can't I also change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure? God continued. This big city of more than 120,000 childlike people who don't yet know right from wrong, to say nothing of all the innocent animals, all of which I created. Well, first, true to fashion, the second I got over there, I remembered what I was going to tell you. Um, I wanted to let you know, so the West Plains Conference consists of 152 churches, and so 40 of those churches joined this last uh, weekend, 25 from New Mexico, and the other 15 were from, from the Panhandle, and there are other churches that are still in the process, so we lift them in prayer, but I just thought that was pretty exciting. And then also, I had an aside that I forgot to mention last week that I just wanted to share with you all. Um, I just realized last week uh, we finished year nine at this church serving as your pastor and as your pastoral family. Um, and so we're starting year 10 today. And I'm just pretty excited about that, like more excited than I've ever been. So, um, so thank you all uh, for that and for that opportunity. And I mean, God's not done with us and we got work to do. So here we go. All right, so this morning we're going to uh, be wrapping up our look at the Old Testament story uh, of Jonah, although I'm going to say I may preach on Jonah next week because, you know, Jesus talks about this book too, and I thought it might make sense for us to see and to look at why Jesus is talking about the story of Jonah and how he uses the story of Jonah uh, to teach and to talk to the Pharisees and to the disciples and to those that are listening to him. So if you come next week and we're talking about Jonah again, here's your disclaimer, it may happen. Uh, but we'll do it from Jesus' side, not just from the Old Testament side. Um, as we've looked at this book of the Bible, this extremely short prophetic book of the Bible, we've looked at a message where this man named Jonah, who is a prophet that we know little about, although he is mentioned in 2 Kings, uh, Jonah is given a message from God that is, go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. As you all know, this short message led Jonah to taking a very long trip. As Jonah decides not to go to Nineveh, because the Ninevites were the hated Assyrians. The Assyrians had conquered the northern region of Israel, the northern country of Israel. They had deported its king. They had taken all of its leaders and, and, and rulers. They had taken all of the craftsmen and tradesmen. And they had basically left Israel with, with nothing. And so Jonah did not want to go to the Nineveh because Nineveh was uh, the Assyrians. And he hated the Assyrians because of what had happened. And so Jonah books passage to Tarshish on a ship to go from Nineveh, or to go as far away from Nineveh as possible. And we've looked at this map more than once, but it gives us a great visual that Tarshish is in southern Spain. And, uh, oh, 
I just got your text. Um, Tarshish was in southern Spain, and Nineveh, you can see, is over here in modern-day kind of Syria. Um, and so you could see the distance that, that Jonah was basically trying to decide, uh, what is the place that I can go as far as possible from where God wants me to go? On the journey, the storm comes up. It tosses the ship around. The sailors cast lots. The lots fall on Jonah. He tells them that he is running from God, and, God ha- and he has them throw him into the sea. The sailors did as Jonah did, and the thing we learned that week was the important thing, that even in Jonah not, not uh, being faithful to God, the sailors believed. And it helps to remind us that sometimes it's not the way that, that we speak, but necessarily it's, it's just the way that we live, right? That people can see God and see Jesus in us even when we're unintentional about it. And that's a privilege in some ways. It's kind of daunting, really, if you think about it in other ways. But when Jonah was thrown into the water, Jonah chapter 1 specifically tells us that after Jonah hit the water, the sailors offered a sacrifice to God and they greatly feared the Lord after that. On the second week of the series, we looked at the prayer of Jonah from the belly of the fish. And what struck me in the belly of the fish is that Jonah's prayer is not necessarily a prayer that is, woe is me. He does not lament where he finds himself. Uh, But what he does do is he recognizes that even in the most unusual places, those can be places that we are protected by God. And so for Jonah, when he looked at his situation, he realized that when the sailors tossed him into the water, the other outcome, instead of being swallowed by a fish, is probably drowning. And so for Jonah, he's looking at his situation, being in the belly of the fish, the belly of the whale, and he is seeing it that God has delivered him, that God is rescuing him, that God is using the vessel of this animal to, uh, in whatever way, preserve him for whatever plan that God still has for him. And so Jonah saw protection in this time, not knowing what was going to happen still. And so his prayer then is a prayer of gratitude that even in this hardest time, he thanks God. Even without the guarantee of what is going to happen, even without the guarantee of what is is going to be before him, even without the guarantee that he is going to be delivered or rescued further in any way, all Jonah could do was pray in the moment, And so he did, and he realized that that what was happening to him is a prayer that he needed to offer to God. And for me, that's something that that got me thinking and makes me realize that all we can do is pray in the moment for what's before us, can't we? We can pray for what we hope is going to happen or for healing that we we seek, but, you know, all we could do is offer our prayer at that time. And Jonah was able to do so. Last week we looked at Jonah 3 where he shares the briefest prophetic message that that you can read in the Bible. Forty days and the city of Nineveh will be overthrown, period. There's no list of sins. There's no list of of actions that the people of Nineveh need to do. There's nothing that that tells us what they were doing to do wrong. There's nothing that, that says here's what you need to do to make your relationship right with God. I don't even know, or I don't even think, I know that Jonah's heart wasn't in the message. Because look at the scripture we read today where he's like, Lord, I know you're gracious. I know you're compassionate. I know that you're full of all of these things. I know that that you will cease in sending calamity. That's why I didn't want to go. So Jonah goes to this city. Jonah goes and he shares this message, not wanting the Ninevites to repent at all. Because he didn't like them. 
And so he's there, and I think he's kind of going, 40 days and the city of Nineveh will be overthrown. But here's the crazy thing. People heard. People heard, and they listened to the message, and, and they, they heard what he was saying. And Jonah knew that when they heard that if they truly repented of their sins, that God would change their situation. And so they reprinted on that short, short prophecy. They repented. And last week, we compared the words that Jonah shared to the Ninevites to the words that Paul shares in the book of Romans. Where we see how Paul boils down the, the equally short message of Christianity and of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in Romans 10, 9, where he says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For Paul, even with all of the other layers and, and letters and everything else that he has written and offered to, to church and to the doctrine of what we believe and to what it means to be a Christian, Paul boils it down to this, to those words right there on the screen. For him, that's the core of the gospel. Essential words of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, of believing in the kingship or lordship of Jesus in your life, and of believing in the resurrection. These are beliefs that make us a Christian. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave. Because they're essential, right? And so for Paul, when he gives us these words, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what makes us who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. So friends, this morning we're focusing on Jonah chapter 4. And as we've read Jonah chapter 4, there is, there's a little room in terms of, of the timeline and, and how exactly things unfold as, as Jonah has shared the prophecy to the citizens of Nineveh. And so the author of this book doesn't give us a clean, step-by-step -step accounting of what happens, which would have been really helpful, right? I mean, I would have preferred a Jonah did this, A, and then he did this, B, and then he did this, C, because it would just give us a much cleaner line. But at some point, we know that Jonah has left the city because he's frustrated. He's angry at what he knows God is going to do. He's angry because he knows that God is gracious, that God is full of compassion, that God is full of love, that God is willing to reverse this, repent, this um, threat of calamity that he has said he is going to pronounce against the city. And so Jonah leaves knowing that his message has not left Nineveh. His message doesn't leave with the prophet. His message has gone from, from him to the citizens. And then the citizens, by word of mouth, have passed it on to their friends and their co-workers and others that live around them until eventually the message through just telephone has been passed on from one individual to another until eventually this call to repentance even reaches the palace, even reaches the nobles, and, and, and they hear it too. Now, I think the amazing thing about this book is Jonah's story is not Jonah standing in front of the king like Moses standing before Pharaoh, is it? Jonah's message reached the king, reached the nobles, without Jonah ever setting foot in the palace. 
I tend to think, I believe, if, if Jonah had gone to the palace, don't you think the author of the book of Jonah would have included that? I have to think they would have. I have to think that whoever wrote this book, if Jonah had gone to the palace, would have written, and Jonah appeared before the king and. But he didn't. And so this message reaches the nobility, the message reaches the king, and a degree of fasting and repentance was issued. And so as Jonah leaves the city, he finds himself walking amongst people that are repenting, and then he finds himself a place sitting over the hill where he wants to see if either God is true to what he knows God to be or not. He wants to see everything occur, he wants to see everything unfold. You know, he's waiting to see the fireworks, isn't he? I mean, Jonah's looking over the city of Nineveh, hoping that what he is going to see is like July 4th. He wants to see the fireworks over this city. He wants to see what God is going to do. And see, I think part of it is because he knows who God is. He knows God to be merciful. He knows God to be grace-filled. He knows God as being filled with compassion, filled with love, filled with everything else that we have seen and Jonah himself has experienced as a person of Israel. Jonah knows that Israel has experienced these qualities of God. What he wants to know now is whether or not God can and will display and demonstrate these same qualities to Nineveh. And so as Jonah looks at Nineveh, and the behavior of the Assyrians as they've conquered the known world in that time, as they've conquered Israel. I'm sure he is th thinking to himself, he, he just can't wrap his mind around the idea that God would give the same quality to Nineveh that he does to Israel. How could he do that? How could God display and extend grace to people outside of the covenant? How could God show compassion to people who do not deserve compassion? How and why would God even consider doing it? Jonah wants to know, and he's upset at this idea that God is going to offer the same grace and love and compassion and mercy to Nineveh. And so he sits on the hill to wait. He wants to watch what happens happen. He wants to see the destruction. Or maybe... If God saves Nineveh, he wants to see that too. I think before we go further into to Jonah's story in Nineveh, I think we can look at the same parallels that we see in the church today. I mean, just look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a story of the, the early Christian church and, and of how they wrestled with what it mean, meant to be a community of faith, what it meant to be followers of Jesus Christ, what it meant for them to, to establish this, this community that worshiped together, that served together, that supported one another, that broke bread together, that did all of the things that they did together. And if you think about the book of Acts and, and then some of the other letters in the New Testament, I want to invite you to think for a minute, just off the top of your head, what are the, some of the conflicts that you can think of when you think of Acts and, and Ephesians and Romans and Galatians and, and whatever other book of the, of the New Testament that you think of? 
I mean, if I think of the book of Acts, if I think of, of some of the conflicts that I know about from the New Testament and the early Christian church faced, I think much of the conflict that they experienced can be centered around the message of Christ and then, two, the audience over who deserved the message of Christ. Their big question, if you think about it, was who is the audience that can receive the message of Jesus, who can receive the message of the resurrection, and who, after receiving those things, and if they believe, can receive salvation? In their time, it was, you know, is it the, those who were in the Jewish faith, or was it those who were Gentiles? Is the Christian message first to be targeted to the Jewish community within the bounds of faithful living? Or is the Christian message supposed to be sent to the Gentiles to be a separate one altogether? Or is it some combination of the two? I mean, that's a whole nother sermon right there. Um, but both the apostles Peter and Paul wrestled with this. As did Barnabas, as did James, as did Philip, as did any of the other apostles that you would think about that, that were sent from Jerusalem out into whatever place that they went to carry the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Both Peter and Paul wrestled with it, and as leaders of the church, both of them experienced separate revelations from God himself in telling them that the Christian faith was to be carried to all people. Look at Peter. I mean, here's a, an artist's rendition of Peter. Peter is sleeping on the roof of a house, and three times in the night, God lowers down a sheet or a tablecloth that has all sorts of animals on it, clean and unclean. When Peter wakes, he says, Lord, there's, there's unclean animals. When God says, take and eat, and Peter declares that some of the animals unclean, and what does God say to him? That the things that I've created are clean, and they're for you, essentially. And so what Peter took from this message, and what God wanted him to see, is that the message that he was carrying of Jesus was not to stay within just the Jewish community of faith, but it was to go out to all people. It is to be taken to the Gentiles, taken to the Greeks, taken to the Romans, taken to whatever community that Peter found himself in. And so that's the message that he took. That's the message that he shared with the early church, and that's the gospel that he proclaimed and preached. Look at Paul in his own ministry. His was a little different. You know, Paul, of course, met Jesus on the road to Damascus, where Jesus said, Paul, Paul, why are, or Saul, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Well, I'm Jesus. And so then Saul goes, and, and he begins carrying the gospel. He realizes that the message of, of hope and grace and of salvation, of the resurrection and everything else, is to be carried to the, the Jewish faith first, and then he began carrying it to the Gentiles. And in his life and in his ministry, Paul tried to go to different places that uh, the Lord closed the door for him. One place called Bithynia, and, and Paul went, tried to go more than once to this place, and every time God provided a roadblock because he didn't want him going there. Now, other apostles went there and carried the gospel, but if you'll remember, as Paul was praying and trying to figure out what his next step was, as he was sleeping one night, a Macedonian man appeared to him in a vision and invited him and told him, come to Macedonia. And so Paul got up. And he took the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in Macedonia. You know, and of course, we know of Paul's ministry. He, he may have been and probably was you know, one of the greatest apostles that's ever carried the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Because both Peter and Paul discovered that the gospel of Jesus was to be for all people. 
as Paul carried the message, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. Peter and Paul discovered in their own ministry and in their own life and in what you and I experience and share, they discovered and experienced what Jonah is about to discover as well in his story. Because if you think of Jonah, we'll return to him. He's sitting there in his shelter on top of a hill overlooking the city of Nineveh. As he sits on the hill, um, I've sat on a hill in the Middle East. They're usually pretty hot, uh, especially in June. Um, God, so he's, he's built himself this shelter. He's sitting up there. He's looking over. I'm sure it's hot. I'm sure it's uncomfortable. And so in the night, God causes a plant, depending on your biblical translation. Some translations say it's a shrub. Some translations say it's a vine. Some translations say it's a plant that grows gourds. So whatever translation it is, you can, you can go with that. But um, the plant grows over the shelter. Of course, this picture, the plant's already dead. Uh, and as we all know from our own experience, whenever you're sitting under the shade of a tree, you know, it's, it's just cooler feeling. And so the scripture tells us that Jonah, Jonah was pleased. He loved it. He had this additional coolness, and now he happily is waiting to see what God has planned. However, his comfort was short-lived. During the night, the scripture tells us that God, who grew this plant, also provided a worm which chewed the vine. And so that next morning, as the rays of the sun began to beat down on the vine, it began to wither and die. And then a scorching east wind came up and beat down on Jonah's head until he grew faint. He was so miserable that he said, Lord, just take me now. And that's when God brings him to task. Where he says, you've been more concerned about this vine that you didn't plant you didn't tend, you didn't cause to grow. It sprang up overnight, it died overnight, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people and cattle, people who cannot tell their right from their left. Why am I not allowed to be concerned for that city? What's God telling Jonah in this interaction? And what can we learn from it? I think for Jonah, it's interesting. You know, this is where the book of Jonah ends. There's not this additional teaching lesson for us to look at and, and think about, but I think for Jonah, what God does is, is he's using the vine to, to point out to Jonah the ridiculousness of his hard-heartedness towards the people of Nineveh. Jonah has experienced grace. Jonah knows the goodness of God. Jonah knows the mercy of God. Jonah knows the compassion of God. Jonah knows the long history of how God has demonstrated all of these things to the people of Israel. Yet he's unwilling to concede or to consider that God can offer this same thing to the hated Assyrians. Jonah may have hated the Assyrians, but God told him that he created him them in the same way that he created Jonah himself and so God wanted them to have the opportunity to return to him and I think for us it's that same uh, wrestling with with what it means for us to carry the gospel that Peter and Paul engaged in what it means for us to to remember that the grace that we have received is not the grace for us to withhold because if our grace has been truly received, if it's truly changed our lives, if it's truly transformed us from who we used to be into who we know that God is making us today and continues to make us, 
Well, then our natural reaction to that should be an outflowing of grace. From my life into the life of others, I don't always have to preach grace, but I can live grace. I can demonstrate grace, I can receive grace, and I can accept the grace that God has given me. I think for us, what we have to be is so filled with the Holy Spirit that the grace of God and the Spirit of God outflows in our actions, in our thoughts, and in our words. Because the danger is the same danger that Jonah had. Because Jonah wanted to keep the grace of God for himself. He wanted to be the one who determined who was worthy of receiving the grace, who was worthy of of having the opportunity to repent. I mean, there's still repentance there. There's still people turning back towards God from what they're doing and from how they're living and from where they're at, right? The people of Nineveh were were not just told, you know, just listen to God. What did it say? It said they had to turn from their ways. But once they returned from their ways, they received the fullness of God's mercy, the fullness of God's compassion, and the fullness of what Jonah himself knew God to be. And friends, that's the same invitation that we have to both receive the grace of God and to turn from the things that that we do that we know hold us back, from the sin that we commit, from from the things that impede us from truly worshiping. We have the opportunity to turn from that and, and to receive in fuller measure the grace that God has given us. But we also have the opportunity to share that gospel, to share that grace as people who have received, who are forgiven, who are grace-filled, who, who know of the compassion of God, who know of, of the transforming power of Jesus Christ as we offer it to others. Because really our faith should not just be about us and what we receive, but our faith should be about how God uses us and about how God uses us so that others can receive. Not for his glory, not for our glory. Ooh, that was backwards. But for his. Amen.